Hello and welcome to the Aquarius Podcast. I'm your host, Randy Reed. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Aquarium Co-op. Aquarium Co-op is your one-stop shop for premium aquarium products to keep all your wet pets happy. Pick up top quality foods like extreme krill flakes, Hikari Viber Bites, or Aquarium Co-op small fish and fry food. And as always, Aquarium Co-op stocks a wide range of healthy and vibrant plants to add a splash of color and natural filtration to any aquarium. So head on over to www.aquariumcoop.com and check out all the goodies for yourself. Now, on to the interview. Today's date is Thursday, September 16th, 2021. My guests today are returning guests Rosario Lacourt and Joe Ferdenzi. So this is Tropical Fish History Part 3. Gentlemen, thank you very much for coming back onto the podcast. You're welcome, Randy. It's good to talk to you and Joe again. Yeah, this is the thank you. Always a pleasure. Absolutely, gentlemen. And this is the first uh, podcast back from. Well, actually, I'm sorry with uh, with you, gentlemen, from my Peru trip. So going down to the Amazon, uh, surviving down there, and uh, having having a fantastic time. I say surviving down there, but it was it was a blast. It was great. Um, Can't wait to go back or a different country and do more wild fish collecting. But um, the connections, like the people, the crew that we work with down in Peru, are so fantastic that. Um, I'd love to see these guys again, and you know, it's. I I feel like it's not too far of a stretch to be like those are those are like my Peruvian friends, you know, those guys are like my Peruvian brothers, yeah. and I would love to go down there and collect with them again, and get uh, get stung by pine needles and get stabbed by <laughs> pimlode catfish, like all of these all of these like trials and tribulations that you go through when you're collecting fish, like. You know, I'm I'm in I'm in the water with them. Granted, they have more experience and they know what to do more with the seine or their dip nets. Like they're just, you know, they're ten times the fish collector that I am. But you know, there's a certain camaraderie when you know when you're both getting stabbed by the same pine fallen pine needle tree in the swamp, or you know, the same mosquitoes are eating you, um, or the bugs are biting you. It's it, it's kind of cool, you know. So you've got we've got that camaraderie. But enough about yeah, me gentlemen sounds like a real bonding experience <laughs> uh that's for sure absolutely i'm going to propose that as like corporate like the like a uh, corporate bonding retreat like don't go to some like nice uh you know ranch in wyoming don't do that like go down to peru and collect fish in the jungle <laughs> if you really want to bond with your uh your corporate peers <laughs> so uh, and one question i want to ask you randy absolutely you were down here i know you you ate quite a few different fish one of the fish that I ate uh, right on a boat when we were pretty hungry, we had not much else. We caught some uh, Prochilotus uh, insignius, which is a beautiful uh, carison, and it's known as the flagtail carison. Some of you may see it. It's in a lot of books. Very, very colorful fish. It's an algae eater, and uh, we cooked them in an open hearth, and they were just delicious. The only thing is we only had two. And we had a share between three of us. It was like, all right, you give me one bone and I'll take the other bone. <laughs> it wasn't much, to, to, you know, but it was so good. <clears throat> but I wanted, what I wanted to ask you, and one of the fish that I wanted to eat, which is supposed to be the Cadillac of the Amazon, is the Arapaima. Did you get a chance to eat any Arapaima? So I ate Arapaima at one of the restaurants that is right along the Iquitos Riverwalk. And, you know, the reason why I'm kind of saying it's along the Riverwalk is that's that's typically kind of the more touristy restaurants. And so this particular restaurant will serve Arapaima. They will serve uh, Peccary. They will serve Cayman. So, like, all of the kind of, like, different uh, – I think they might even have had guinea pig. I can't remember if they had – 
maybe the first time they had guinea pig and I tried it. But uh, yeah, they've got all the exotic uh, foods. And the way they bring it out, it's very like family style. So you're just kind of like popping like nuggets into your mouth and you don't really know like what you're eating. But I know I definitely at some point had arapaima. Um, all of those different meats were really, really good. I will say probably the best fish, and if you have any follow-up questions, Rosario, by all means, um, but the best fish to eat down there is going to be tiger shovel nose. So, and the and the local name down there for the particular tiger shovel nose will be Donsea. And these things are amazing. Like this fish eats like a saltwater fish. And, you know, when you think about it, it's like this is kind of the apex predator catfish. I mean, they get enormous. Like these are monster catfish that can get up to what, like five, six feet, you know, like, uh, like massive, massive things. They're just down there sucking up other fish. You know, they're, I, I don't know if they're quite scavengers. Maybe they are eating dead fish, but like you would not think that that fish would be good, but it was amazing. You know, whether they fry it up as little Donsea nuggets or you're having Donsea ceviche, it is phenomenal. Like such a good, such a good catfish. Um, and the couple different types of tiger shovel nose, there's actually just the one that's the Donsea. And then the other ones are like, oh, okay, that's regular tiger shovel nose. I don't know the exact species off the top of my head. And then you've got the Dorado, the gold version. That one's also good, but not as good as the Donsea. Um, so I would say like my number one fish to eat down there would be the Donsea. Um, Pleco soup for breakfast is also really good. We had that the first trip. We didn't get any Plecos the second trip. Like, we thought we saw the floating pleco barge. We went up to it, and it was actually a family. They had they had smoked plecostomus, but they didn't have. They actually were. I think they had a bunch of building material that they were taking somewhere. Uh, but it, it had looked very similar to the first trips. The, the first time we came across a pleco barge, so we weren't able to buy any um, on the river, which is a pretty novel experience. So no pleco soup. Um, had piranha. Had um, peacock bass. Um, to, uh, Tucanare, I think Tucanare is what they call the peacock bass. Tucanare, and, yeah, Tucanare. Yeah, yeah. Um, and th- those both just kind of taste like a trout. But yes, to go back and to kick the dead horse, the the tiger shovel nose is a supremely good fish. And um, maybe arapima, if I had some arapima ceviche, or maybe maybe fresher, you know, maybe the restaurant doesn't have like the, you know, straight out of the water, like a local fisherman just caught it. You know, I think there there's a lot of aquaculture yeah. for the arapima. So maybe... You know, it's kind of like yeah, the same. There is a lot. Yeah, I, I've heard the comparisons of like, oh, when you eat ranched deer, it is nothing in comparison to wild deer. Same thing with elk. So maybe, maybe there's some of that involved. But um, yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, yeah there is a restaurant. Yeah, there is a restaurant here in New Jersey now that, that does sell arapaima. Uh, you can get it. I think they, I don't think ship it up from Florida because they are culturing it. In Florida now, I think, and I know they oh, culture really? it in Brazil. Yeah, they do culture it. So at one time, it was uh, against the wall to, 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 to catch them and, and eat them. They wanted you to yeah, throw them back in because the natives are really thinning them and herd down. Yeah. So, there's, but now I think they're, they've, they've got it down so pat. I mean, there's a lot of fish farming now in Brazil. I've been to several fish farms. They do a great job. They're just like us, you know, they strip them and all that by hand and and fertilize them in addition and uh, have them go through a series of uh, uh, um, uh, water changes and things like that until they get to a size and then they can you know feed on them 
Yeah, and I think so, the way per, I think the way Peru handles its its uh, export ban list is a little bit different than Brazil. And I'm I'm no expert on this, but you know, um, in conversation with our tour guide and in some of the preparation documents for the trip, they do share an entire list of of fish that cannot be exported out of Peru. And I believe that fundamentally those are food fish as opposed to, oh, that's that's more yeah. of an endangered fish that's overcollected for the hobby. I think it's purely based on, no, 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 those are local food fishes. We don't export those. So like the peacock bass, the um, there were some uh, very large bar, uh, brycon tetras that we collected the first trip that we weren't able to bring back. Um, and so I think, I think it's more so for Peru as opposed to, I think where Brazil was a little bit more hypersensitive to uh, things that are potentially exploited for the aquarium hobby, um, and then get put on a banned list for um, you know to to help them bounce back, as opposed to only banning things that are a food fish. If that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, okay. So uh, Rosario, what uh, what do you have for us today? Okay. Well, I thought I'd, today I'd speak a little bit about the uh, the origins of how the black phantom got into the hobby. And the only reason I bring it up, I thought about this. He's talking about the black phantom. Black phantom tetra, yeah. Some other kind of black phantom. Yeah, the Hyphestobrycon megalopterus, right? It used to be known as megalomphotus megalopterus, but Weitzman changed it, and uh, when he created the, uh, uh, put them in a a genus, Hyphestobrycon, where they belong. Anyway, uh, I have a lot of beautiful pictures of all these fish, it's too bad there's not a video or a slideshow. And uh, you can hear me. I, it'll probably be my last talk. In uh, November, I'm going to be speaking in uh, the Clark Library at the uh, North Jersey Aquarium Society, of which I've been a member for many years. I haven't been to a meeting now in uh, more than a year because of uh, being hit with congestive heart failure. And I'm on oxygen, so I have to walk around with a tank. And, you know, I'm closing in on 93, so uh, I'm not a kid anymore. So and, it'll be... And, Rosario, I'm sorry to uh, interrupt, but th- that's going to be an in-person event that you're actually going to speak at? Pardon? Is, is That's actually going to be an in-person event that you will be speaking at? Yeah, it's it's a uh, it's a club. It's a regular yeah. society. Okay. Meeting. Yeah, yeah. So it's, not not like a an internet Zoom call. So what I'm getting at is if anybody, no, it's not. No, it's anybody. No, it's not a Zoom call. No. Anybody in that like general area, like if you're within a five hour driving distance, I would be going to see Rosario talk. Especially if you're saying Rosario, this might be you know one of your last in person fish club presentations that you give. I mean that seems. Very, very epic, and hopefully the club, maybe, yeah, I, I would hope they would have your blessing, but to, you know, do a good job with maybe some video document, video documenting uh, that talk. Yeah, I, I, I wish somebody would videotape it. I don't know if it will be. I'll have to check on that because I don't think I'll be speaking anymore. I don't think I'll be able to. First of all, I can't go too far away from home. That's only about 15 minutes from home, and my... Uh, my compressor will hold about four hours of oxygen. And what, what I can do, though, the good thing about it is I can plug it in and it can be recharged while I'm speaking. So even though it might, I may not have a, say, if I'm up to 70% on my oxygen level, I can plug it in and then while I'm speaking, it'll go back up to 100. So it's not a problem as long as I'm there and I'm near an electrical outlet 
So, yeah, I hope I was thinking about that because I don't think I'll be able to go around too far anyway, because that's the closest society club. And I don't, I, I'm afraid to go too far because uh, if I do run out of oxygen, the good thing about it, there is a special cable where you can plug into the cigarette lighter in an automobile. But it's still a risky thing if uh, I'm too far away and there's a problem. You know, it's, I just don't want to take a chance on it. I don't I want to worry my family. Well, I'll put notes. So anyway, I'll put a link in the show notes of this episode. Uh, so hopefully that, that New Jersey Aquarium Club, they have specific uh, a specific page for your talk, which I think a lot of fish clubs will do that. So I'll look for that. I'll link it in the show notes. So anybody on the East Coast or anybody interested in going to that talk, hopefully your, your club is receptive to this, but you know they could at least um, see the details around that. Yeah, I think they would be interested because there's a. It's going to be a a, a talk on me and some of the things that I've uh, had happen to me over the years. It, believe it or not, some of the subjects you may not be interested in. I, I'm going to be talking about baseball, <laughs> which I was very interested in. I'll show you some of the early days of my big one. I thought I was going to be a professional baseball uh, career. And uh, some of that, and then there's pictures of some flowers, pictures of some insects, some close-up photography. So it's a little bit of everything, and I usually do that for the ladies who are not interested in fish. <laughs> so that's, it, that's, and awesome. that's what I do. I tell them, and some of the women have really responded very well to it. But anyway, we better get going with my show. <laughs> get, on, Otherwise, get on with it, Rosario. <laughs> yeah, all right. So here's how it started. Of course, some may or may not know, and I'm happy to be back here on on a special podcast again with Joe and Randy. I don't know how much input I'm going to get from my two buddies, but if you want to jump in at any time, you're more than welcome. And uh, But anyway, in 1958, uh, and those were the days when I was really buddy-buddy with Herb Axelrod. He was just starting TFH. TFH was in its fledging uh, uh, issues and I was a good part of that. I used to bring fish to his uh, office in Jersey City every second and, week. Uh, I'd bring right TFH. When you say TFH, just so the, your listeners know, uh, right? Uh, Rosario said 1958 and was fledgling magazine. It, it was started, the first issue came out in September of 1952. So, yeah, yeah it's been a while. Yeah, you're right. And I met Herbie somewhere around 54 or so. And uh, I get to be good friends with him. And I tell you, uh, he had some good qualities, but unfortunately, he uh, he hurt a lot of people. And uh, it's a good example of not what to do with your life. Uh, but anyway, I'm not here to destroy anybody's reputation. So I, I am, I'm grateful to him. He, in 19, we got to be very good friends. And in 1958, he called me. He said, hey, I'm going to Brazil, and uh, how would you like to go? I said, oh, that'd be great. He said, I'll pay for your ticket. Anything is, you'll have to pay for your hotel. I said, that's fine. So he paid for the ticket, and we flew down in a constellation. I remember sitting in the plane, and uh, I said, hey, when we get back, maybe we should do a book on uh, fish. He says, no. He says, you don't have the ability to do a book. He said, but I could make you a star in any way you'd want. I could write about you 
and you come out looking like a million dollars, even though you don't know the first thing about fish. And so he already had, he had, he just gave me an idea of what journalists can do. As you know, journalists, many journalists just sit in their office and make stories up. A lot of stuff you read in the newspapers is not always true. But anyway, that's besides the point. So we flew down in a constellation. And that was the hot plane in those days. That was 1958. And we flew to Miami first. And then from there, we changed planes. And then we flew to Trinidad. And we were there for uh, several days. And then we went from there, we went to uh, Rio and then Sao Paulo. And uh, I was there. This, this occurred all within a week or so. I could only get away for a certain amount of time. And uh, we had our, our uh, let me see, what was it? Our fourth child was Eileen, my uh, youngest daughter. She was just six months old when I left. And my wife wasn't too happy about me leaving. And I said, honey, this is really a, a one in a million chances to really get a chance to go to Brazil. It was my dream from, uh, from early boyhood, which is true. I really dreamed of going to Brazil never realized I would get to go there seven times. But anyway, so we got to, to Brazil. And uh, when we got to Rio, we did some collecting around here. And I met Antonor Carvalho. And I think I mentioned it in one of the podcasts where it's in the book. that uh, I hit it off great with him. I really liked this guy. He was a wonderful field naturalist. And he was, by trade, a herpetologist. He was never trained, but he was a self-taught man and very well-respected scientists in Brazil. And he described many different species. He did a lot of work with killies. He loved annual fishes. And uh, anyway, he, he gave me a four-part volume of Fowler's Freshwater Fishes of Brazil. And I think I mentioned it before. I had It was one of my prized possessions. And uh, what was it, two years ago, Joe, something like that? I think something like that. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, before the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah, before the pandemic, and Joe was able to get around yet. And I was laying in bed one night, and I said, you know, I got this four-part volume, and I realized that I was getting on in age, and I said, you know, every good thing has to come to an end. And I realized, well, I don't know how long I'm going to hang on. I might have to be honored. I don't know, but so far... I was beating everybody in the family. And I said, boy, this is unusual. And so uh, I gave Joe a call. I said, Joe, I said, this is my most prized possession. But I thought last night, I was thinking about it. I said, if anything happens to me, my kids have no idea what these books are like. You will. I said, so while I'm alive, I want you to have this set of Fowler's Freshwater Fishes of Brazil. I said, uh, they, I, I think they're valuable. I really like them, and I hate to give them up, but I can't take them with me, and they're yours. So I gave them to Joe, and they're autographed by Cavallo, which makes it even more uh, uh, wanting to have have a part of it. So anyway, yeah, so I had... Keep in mind that these, you know, uh, Rosario has given me many things. Uh, you know, he's being modest uh, when he says, you know, when he's talking about this, because he's given me many, many things in the past, publications and everything, um, including something that used to belong to his father, which I had rebound, and which is some of these things I'm going to have them rebound so that they're 
better preserved, you know. And again, uh, money has nothing to do with this. I mean, I don't, I don't sell books. I don't sell my things. I'm, I'm not in the business of that. These things, all these things that I have, including Rosario's books, I treasure them because they come from, from friends and they're full of memories, you know. So I thank Rosario for his generosity uh, on that. And he's certainly right that I, I will treasure these things. Yeah, so anyway, we, then we got to, uh, we got to uh, uh, Sao Paulo. And um, so I said to Herb on a plane, I said, when we get to Sao Paulo, I said, we'll have to call Harold Schultz up. And uh, so I thought Herbie might have known who he was every year. He says, no, I never heard of him. He says, well, I got the name from Alan Fletcher. Alan Fletcher used to be very close to him. And uh, since Brazil didn't have a Kodak firm, he used to have to send his film up to Kodak in New York. And there he would have his, his film developed. And it would take several weeks before he got it back. You can understand it. It's not like it is now. You can do everything over a computer or send stuff out quickly. And you don't even, they don't even do film anymore, really, unless it's something special. But anyway, uh, when we got to, to Sao Paulo, uh, oh, I, I said, you know, he's in, uh, Alan Fletcher told me that he was in Sao Paulo and that he takes care of his film. So, all right. When we got to Sao Paulo, I said, gee, I don't have his phone number, though. I said, I don't even have his address. I wonder how we can get him. We figured we're going to look at look and see in the phone book. So we couldn't find a phone number in the phone book, but there was an address. We found an address. So Herb had a good idea to send him an email, not an email, but a telegram. He sent him a telegram and told him who we were and where we were until we get together. And sure enough, that night he came to the hotel to meet us. And it's the first time we met Harold Schultz. And, and this is you, Harold, by the way, just for the sake of your listeners, it, it's spelled with two A's. It's Harold, you know, not, yeah. not Harold with an O. And and the other thing I just want to briefly mention, because Rosario uh, spoke about Alan Fletcher being the contact with Harold. Uh, ironically, uh, Alan Fletcher was the editor at the rival magazine to TSH. He was an editor at the Aquarium magazine the one that had been founded by uh, William T. Innes back in 1932. Mm. Right. And so go back a long time. And Alan was very generous in what he did. In fact, he even told me when he gave me the, the phone number, not the phone number, but the, his contact. He says, whatever you do, try not to, uh, try not to have Herbie make any deals with him. I said, I'll try my best. And so here I was between two friends, but they were rivals in, in the business. And I had to walk a fine line. I didn't want to offend anyone. So anyway, we got there. to, And so Herb was smart enough to send him an email. And he did get the email. And he came to the hotel. So we did some collecting. And uh, but before we did any collecting, we went to his home. And he had a beautiful tank display. At a, I forget what size it was. And I would say it's, it would be about a the 50-gallon tank, thinking back now, if I can recollect. And he had it very well planted. He had a nice eye for what the thing should look like. And he had 
I was flabbergasted because in those days we had we had several tetras, you know, the typical tetras you'd find in a pet shop, glow lights, serpes, uh, black line tetras, black tets, stuff like that, a little von Rios. These were all very easily bred in Florida fish farms were by people and people would sell them to the pet shops. It was a good business in those days. So anyway, uh, he, uh, he had all these new tetras there. He had black phantoms in there. He had uh, some uh, beautiful red serpes, which eventually turned out to be, they described them years later, and they named them after Harold. They were called Hypester Brock and Harold Schultz. an exceptionally red form it has a very small humeral spot on the side, and they're very many, and he's pretty kind of true. They, they come out really red. And so he had so many different tetras that I never saw before. Some were still undescribed. And uh, that was the first time we saw the wimple piranha, which was uh, the piranha that uh, has a long, it's underslot jaw, and it's used for scraping scales. And then Brazil, they call them. Pesci di scama, uh, no, which means scale-eating fish. And they would, they would eat the scales off fish, and, of course, that would eventually kill them. They'd get uh, infections. And so they weren't really a fish to have uh, in a tank. I don't know how you could keep them survive so long, but I never kept them as a uh, pet anyway. But they, they kind of made a big impression when they first came in because they were so unusual-looking. But anyway, we took pictures of all that stuff. Herbie did because he was really into photography more than I was at the time and uh, used it for his magazine. So we, we saw a lot of tetras in there I had never seen before. And the black phantom was the one that really was outstanding because each time a male would pass another male, he would flare his fins and he would open up like a, a flower blossom. They were really beautiful and they were dark. I said, wow, what are these? He said, but I don't know. I said, I don't have a name on it. So and he offered them all to us. So I said, yeah, I'd love to have some of these. He said, oh, yeah, I can give you only one if I get them in the Pantanal. And I, I don't remember now. There was a, a Mato Grosso in those days was they had, the Mato Grosso was one state. Brazil is like, I, I forget, I think they have like, I don't know if there's 24 states in Brazil. I don't remember now. I'd have to go back and they check with that. But in those days, it was known as Mato Grosso, and then they changed it. I think it was a few years later. They called it the Southern Mato Grosso and the Northern, so it is the North and the South Mato Grosso. So what, that they're made in two states out of them because they grew in population. And uh, so anyway, he offered all these fish to, to, to us, and Herb and carried them back to the uh, U.S., and I got all these fish. And so in December, that was in 1958, in 58, I spawned them, Black Phantoms, and wrote an article on it. And it appears in the uh, DFH in 1959 is an article that I wrote on the spawning of the Black Phantom Tetra. But by then, I had broke with her. I mean, we just, not an argument, we just fell apart. And I'm, I'm kind of glad I did, because it's a long story. I'm glad I did, because it would have been a little bit of a hardship if I had stayed with them. Uh, anyway, uh, what happened was we didn't know the name of the fish. So as I was in a hotel room, 
our room was adjoining Herb and his wife. His wife was with him, Evelyn. And we had this young fellow, Ulf Honertz. Uh, in fact, I think it was Joe. I think you were the one, Joe, that sent me a, a picture of him. He became a world famous. What was it, Joe? He was a. a very yeah, he, he was a. He was a little. He was actually a, a, a kid. I, I forget how old he was. He was 15 he, when we had him. Okay. Yeah, he was like 15, and he won. He won some uh, contest in Sweden, some trivia contest, because he. Oh yeah, that's story I know. Tropical fish yeah. and uh, yeah, all panners and uh, so he used the money I guess from that he won on this Swedish game show to go on this trip. Yeah, no, I was no, I wasn't thinking about that because I know the whole story. Yeah, that's, uh, the story that's I'm talking awesome about. That you what was he won? He won a Swedish game yeah, show. Yeah, no, he was fi- <laughs> he was he was fifteen. He was fifteen years old, and uh, Herbie's dropped him off at my house one day because I guess Herbie had things to do and he didn't want to entertain a young kid. So he stuck me with him and, <laughs> and he was very shy. And uh, he, he told me the story. He said he won $2,500 on the game show, which was much, it was the equivalent to our $64,000 question, which was a big show on TV in the early fifties. And that was the equivalent to our show. Only they didn't give you as much money as, uh, in America as they did in Sweden. Anyway, he won $2,500 and he told me his his questions were he had to identify uh, all these different fe- species of fish that they put in the aquarium and that's how he won it. But he told me I happen to know what they are because they were my friend's fish and I knew all the fish. So there's a little bit of a uh, you know devious thing on his part. He already knew what the answers were and he won $2,500. So with that money, his parents must have been very liberal because they allowed him. Can you imagine letting your 15-year-old son go to Nigeria without knowing anybody? Wow! To go down there to collect fish, he went and he bought he bought the whole outfit. He had a whole he had an Australian outback hat, you know, with the one side folded. <laughs> yeah. And he wore that, and he and he had he had the shirt with all the pockets in it. And uh, he had uh, he had the whole outfit, but he never went to water. He was afraid to go in the water, and he had people collecting for him. And I have to hand it to him, though. I mean, that's it takes a lot of nerve for a kid to go off to Africa. I mean, who would ever think of going to Africa, or even his parents allowing him to do that? I mean, I I'd, I'd shudder to let my, my kids do something like that. But anyway, uh, he was in the room my with mother, me. My mother wouldn't even let me join the Boy Scouts. No. <laughs> I know that's the way it was in those days. We were very careful, you know. But anyway, so I'm thumbing through the book, The Fowler's Freshwater Fishes of Brazil. Rosario, I'm I'm looking. I'm I'm so sorry to interrupt, but it's funny because you, you, you know, we're talking about growing up in what, like the 50s and 60s, right, Joe? And the idea that, like, Back then, at least my perception is that you guys could just do whatever the heck you wanted. Like you'd hop on your bike with a banana seat, slap a baseball card in the spokes, and you would just have your like you would just run the town and do whatever you want. Where like now it's like, oh no, you have to be. We've got the GPS lock. We know where the kids are. We're we're tagging them through the the iPhone software. And then to hear you say that that there were still super protective parents that were like, oh no no, you can't even join the Boy Scouts. You're not gonna go starting fires in the woods. Well, you. You're right about one thing, though, Randy. Uh, my mother, you know, 
given her background and everything, she, she was she didn't want to hear anything about me living in the woods or <laughs> in a tent, okay? Because, <laughs> you know, she had come from the old country, you know, Italy, where people still lived in hovels back in the day. And, you know, she came to America for a better life because she wasn't going to let me go roughing it in, in, in some forest or something. But around the neighborhood, yeah, I mean, uh, you would go out after school and your parents had no idea where you were. <laughs> we could have been doing any kind of crazy thing and often were. And your parents didn't okay. know where the hell you were. Okay, so that and is so true. That's that still age, true. Okay. Like, all right. Yeah. I thought you guys are about to you're about to right. shake my understanding of the uh, generational differences yeah, yeah. of our upbringings. No, no, no. All right, Rosario. I mean, we used to go on the subway. Me and my, you know, my 15 year old friend, or tw- actually even younger, 13 years old, would go on the subway. You know, the New York City subway, and travel all the way into Manhattan to go to the Aquarium Stock Company. You know, that famous store. And my parents, they within, they had no idea where I was going or what I was doing. As long as everybody had this rule in the neighborhood, you had to be home for dinner. If you weren't home for dinner, then they would call out the mounted police, all right? <laughs> but if you got home in time for dinner, then everything was, you could be anywhere doing anything. This is true. It has changed completely, I know. Because I got two grandsons. I know how my daughter is with them and everything. But you're right, Randy. Once upon a time, that's the way it was. All right. Anyway, back to the Black Phantom Tetra. Yeah, back back to Fish Talk. Thank you guys for (laughs) indulging me. Anyway, I guess I get, yeah, that was the story. He got, uh, he knew what the the, uh, names of fish were, and that's how he won his money. But anyway, so he was in a room with me. And uh, I'm thumbing through Fowler's Freshwater Fishes of Brazil, and I get to this one page in the book on Carrisons, and lo and behold, there's a sketch of a black fan that's pretty darn good. I said to Oaf, I turned to Oaf, I say, Oaf, that's the fish Harold Schultz gave us. That's the black phantom there. I said, it looks just like it. You know, the humeral spot, the big dorsal fin. And there's no question about it. And it had megalomphos megalopterus. It was described. I don't know if it was Fowler that described it or Eigenman or I forget who it was. who was the original author, but it's been known for quite a few years. And this is 1958, so it's way beforehand, but nobody's been down here to collect them, you know, to have them in a hobby as, as far as exporters are concerned. So that's how we got them. I brought the, the first ones back. And uh, bred them in 59, wrote an article on 58, and then spawned them in 58, and then wrote an article in 59. But by then, I had broken with Axelrod. And then, as I said, it's a long story what happened. I'm glad it happened because it, it turned out better for me and later on in life. And that's another story we don't get into. Anyway, we, and so I told Herbie the next morning, I was excited. I said, Herbie, you know what the name of that fish is? It's Megalomphotus megalopterus, and I showed him, nah, I don't think it's a herb. I said, that's the fish, no question about it. Well, it turns out I was right, and he wasn't very good at sometimes identifying things. He was uh, not too sharp on some of the stuff. Anyway, so that's how the fish was, uh, we got to know the name, and Black Phantom, that name was given by Harold Schultz. He's the one that came up with that name. <laughs> 
And so we used that name, and it and it stuck. And they were kind of easy to name. <laughs> yeah, it really yeah, is. It was, it was it was a very appropriate name, and uh, that's where they come from. They come from that area, and they come from north of the area. Also, they come from Bolivia. The females were smaller, and they have a red anal fin. Now, at one time, I used to collect. Uh, I had some Daphne olds out in the uh, we call it the meadows, and that was part of Newark Airport. Now, I only lived about 15 minutes away from Newark Airport. And the meadows was a real large meadowland. It was still all marshland. And I used to go down this road, and I had a couple of Daphne holes. I had a big Daphne upon that. I had nobody, no competition. I used to get Daphne there. And across the road, there was another big pond. It was all rainwater. It was mostly, it was cooler. And the sun very seldom hit it because it was a big hill behind it. And that blocked the sun from coming down unless it was high noon. And then it would get a little bit, of, the water was kind of deep and it was a little cooler than the water that the Daphne came from. And in that water was just nothing but glass larvae. So I had a choice of tons of Daphne, tons of glass larvae. And then on a road one time I stopped, I said, I'm going to look behind that, uh, that little marsh, that parcel of marshland there. And I looked behind it and there's a pond. And you wouldn't believe the mosquitoes in there. I must have taken five or ten pounds of mosquito larvae out the wow. first day. And I wouldn't take it in a house, of course. I had the fish house then. And I fed everything just mosquito larvae. And I had, I kept it in big refrigerator liners. And I'm sure a lot of it got away, but I tried to <laughs> use it all up before they became winged and then fly away. So, I mean, the food, the food source I had was... That's what made me, I think, very successful in reproducing a lot of fish. I had a very good source of uh, diets for the fish. And yeah, live, then, live food played such yeah. a big part of the hobby back in, you know, in the early it days. It sure was. Now, now it's kind of dying out. But, uh, you know, I just want to get back to the Black Phantom for a second because that is currently, you know, one of the most popular aquarium fish there is. It's very hard to walk into a local pet shop aquarium store and not see black phantoms on sale it's a very in-demand fish uh it's bred by the thousands you know in fish farms in the far east and everything and yet here's the guy we're talking to rosario lacourt who is the only guy still alive who knows the story inside out of how this most pop one of the most popular aquarium fish got into the hobby a lot of people maybe keeping it breeding it but they don't know how it got into the hobby so now here we have it recorded how it got into the hobby and it, to me it's a fascinating story of contacts and you know how one person leads to another person who you know gets who has the fish right in his living room because he's living in brazil you know mm -hmm. and um, and then rosario is like the first person to breed it yeah, I love uh, and, uh, I, Joe. I'm glad you're. I'm glad you're doing this, and uh, I because I, I wanted to at least come back on and touch on it as well. That the way Rosario casually talks about you know bringing it in, like he's obviously he's telling us the story, right? And he's mentioning you know oh, and I bred it, and I wrote the article about it, and I was the first person to do it in a very casual manner. And it's like, man, that's uh, 
That's really impressive, Rosario. Like that's 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 history. That's that's ultra impressive. And like you're saying, this is not like some super obscure killifish or something like that. This is a very mainstay, like incredibly popular and incredibly beautiful fish in our hobby. It is. It's just it's a mainstay too. It's really stuck. It really made a big impression on aquarists, and many people have it just for for its beauty. It's a very beautiful fish. And uh, and then I uh, here's another part of the story. Uh, further down this road, they uh, expanded this, this this huge amount of land, and the Newark Seaport is in that area, and they were developing even more because there's a lot of cars at that time were coming in to Newark Air uh, Seaport, uh, and and they were bringing cars in from the far east and uh, Germany. A lot of Volkswagens came in here, Port Newark. And you could see them all lined up. So they were reclaiming a lot of land that was there. And so anyway, I drove down and I was driving down this road one day. I took you to Port Newark. And I see this huge mound of dirt. And I said, gee, I never saw that dirt before. What's that? So I parked the car and I walked up the hill. And uh, and what's behind it was a huge, it was a long strip of a pond I don't know if I talked about this in one of the other podcasts, but the, the, the pond was kind of long and narrow, and it led out to Newark Bay, which is a brackish water. It would be a brackish water uh, water uh, waterway. So I put my net in the water, and this might be a good thing. So I didn't get a Daphne, but it came up with pounds and pounds of, of cyclops. I said, wow. I never, I, I've collected fish many times. I mean, not fish, but uh, uh, crustaceans. I've never collected cyclops like this. Now, I know there are places from the Far East because uh, Zoo Med puts out, uh, I think they sell uh, cyclops. I think they heat them up, yeah, though, they, if you notice. They sell it in a can. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, they sell it in a can, and they come out They come out red, So, which is the carotenoids that are in it, and that will change. It's like the crab. You, you you cook a blue crab, and what happens when you cook it? It's red. It's the carotenoids in it that really come out. That's and you always hear me talking about carotenoids and its importance in the coloration, the pigmentation of fish. So I, I came home with all these cyclops, and I start, and just so happened I had some a couple of big spawns of black phantoms. So I start pumping that into them almost every day. And lo and behold, my, my friend Fred Glody was one of my best friends. The kids called him Uncle Fred. He was a friend for many years, and there's a picture of him in a book uh, netting some Daphne in his backyard pond. And uh, he comes in, he says, what's this? Is this a new fish you got here? I said, no, they're black phantoms. What do you think of that? He, I said, look at the color of those females. Their anal fin was brilliant red. And because of the cyclops, the cyclops were green feeding off the algae, and, that, and that's what turned them kind of red down there. They, they were getting a lot of carotenoids from the algae. And uh, so I, I couldn't, and, and one of the things I made a mistake, I didn't photograph it, and here I was really into photography, and I missed so many wonderful pictures over the years that I could have photographed, so I had a recording of it, and I didn't do it. But I, I never forgot that, and I had this wonderful coloration. Now, I have a feeling... That's what may have happened with the fish that were collected in Bolivia much years later. I'm trying to think of my friend's name, and I can't think of it now. Him and a bunch of guys bought a a strip of land 
down there, and it was really confiscated, nationalized. And the Bolivians nationalized when the communists took over. So they nationalized his land and took it away from him. But he had a big strip of land there with a house on it and all, and he had a housekeeper taking care of it. And so, what part of Bolivia? In the conversation, Rosario, what part of Bolivia pardon? is that in? I've got it just pulled up on Google oh, Maps and just for my own curiosity. I don't remember where it was. He did tell me, and it's so many years ago now. Was it like and, uh, probably somewhere along like the northeastern border between Bolivia and Brazil, I'm guessing? Um, I would probably say so because <clears throat> they had to, uh, since the Black Phantom comes from that area, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. it would have to be connected to the Pantanal because I know the, the river system does empty down into the Pantanal. I think it's part of the Paraguay system. I'm not sure. I don't have the map in front of me. I'm going by my uh, what I can remember. No worries. No worries. Sorry and for the interruption. Any, yeah, but anyway, the uh, the color was exquisite because I was feeding nothing but cyclops. And uh, so they were bantering this about on Facebook several weeks ago, and, uh, and I did have some correspondences with uh, Lucanus, and I, I mentioned the reason why uh, I was contacting him because we were old friends and I wanted to see how he was doing besides. And he said that they were talking back and forth and people were saying that the red, the black phantom is actually red in the wild. And when they came in, they were collected and brought in. They were uh, bred and then they were, the, the black form was bred from wild stock. I said, that, that's the farthest from the truth. There's no known, known, that's nonsense. There's nothing truth about, truthful about that. And I said, this is the reason why I came up with this idea. Let's record this and get the oral history correct on this, because that's not true. They weren't bred that way. That's the way they are in a while. They are black in the wild. Another thing Al Schultz told me about, which was very interesting, when he saw mine, because the following year, Harold was in my house, and he saw the black phantoms I was raising. He said to me, no, Rosario says, the black phantoms are really big. He says, I never see them in a while like that. They're always small. And he says, and then sometimes in a, during a dry season, it can get pretty cold there. It can go into the upper 40s. And he says, sometimes it'll, it'll, there'll be a big fish kill. There's a certain name that Brazilians call them. I don't remember the name they use, but they, it's a big fish kill. A lot of fish die. Fortunately, a lot of rivers are spring-fed because I've been in some rivers where the springs come out of the bottom of the riverbed at full force. You can feel it. It can almost sweep you away. And uh, the water is always warmer down below. And I think in some areas where the fish are preserved, the, the, the fish that are in the upper levels and where it gets colder and there's no, no spring feeding or overflow of other rivers, uh, naturally, they're going to die from the cold weather. It's a little too cold for them. Like if it reaches into the upper 40s, they're not going to last. It's going to kill them. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened. He said, there is a big fish kill. He says he's seen a lot of rivers where the fish were all dead. And, uh, but he says in a while, he's never seen black phantoms that are big like this. Now, uh, we didn't talk about it last time, but Avril Lucanus put out a, uh, a uh, video and it was 30 new catchers that were 
I think we being collected from the from the Pantanal. Yeah, I think we actually did. Yeah, we you uh, mentioned it. Yeah, and you I have it linked. It. You mentioned that black one with the white edging on the fins. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's a great video. There's some really magnificent yeah. looking fish there, and uh, according to Oliver, he says that they're getting into these areas now where they could never get into before. He says, but unfortunately, they're doing so much uh, restructuring of the uh, land that they're destroying a lot of the land mass and it's killing a lot of stuff off. And he, he's afraid that some of these are, areas are so restricted with the types of fish they have in it, they might get uh, eliminated completely and you won't see them at all. So they're trying to collect them. And I know didn't seem to have a, a, a contact to get all this stuff. But the only thing that bothers me about the regions Everything is money, and it just makes me boil because I know money is important to, for an economy. But I don't know what they're worried about. I mean, they they'll only send mails. Like when the blueberry tetra first came in, they only they, they got them first, and uh, they were selling for a high price, but they only sell, send mails. Well, I mean, come on, that's, that's kind of dirty. You're sending people fishing, and you think they're going to breed them. And they're trying to figure out what the hell sex on these things. Well, they can't sex them because they're all male. Yeah. So that's what they're doing. I got the blueberry catcher from Luck. And my friend Steve White happened to get a female by accident. And he got a little spawn out of him. And he was able to give me a, a female. And that's how I got the breed. And I raised quite a few of them. I, just from that one female I got from Steve. And I did very well with the blueberry catcher. That was a... a one of the cases that uh, get this new stuff and they don't release them, and we can't compete with them in the first place. First of all, they have the warmth of the weather in their favor. They have a lot of warm weather. They don't have to worry about that. The water is no uh, is not a, a problem for them. I remember uh, one of my friends that went to the Far East, he said that, they change the water twice on discus. They don't even have air stones or air filters or any box filters in air tanks. Now, I don't know if they all do this, but some of them may do it. Some may have filters. But for what he saw, my friend, this is like 50 years ago now. He used to get free tickets from the airlines because he did like $100,000 worth of business a year. And the airlines would give him a gift every year to go wherever he wanted to. So he went to the Far East to see how they bred discus. And he told me they fill the discus tanks up twice a day and empty it twice a day. And they're flopping on the bottom of the tank. They fill them back up with new water. They don't have to worry about chlorine or anything. The water is nice and warm. And they have, they send a guy out with a bicycle, you know, have three or four boxes, styrofoam boxes on the back of the bike. And he'll come back with a box full of tube effects. Daphnia, mosquito larvae, and whatever he can find. And that's what they have, lots of live food. So they don't have a problem. We can't compete with that. Who here in the United States has that? There's, you might few and far between. You might be some guys near a farm where they have. They might be raising pigs, and there's a pond there, and if you got Daphnia there, like sea caucus here in New Jersey, used to be known as the pig farm area. When you went down a turnpike, you had to hold your nose with a clothespin that stunk so bad from the pig farmers. But they had Daphnia holes all over the place. The guys used to go there and get Daphnia. It was an inexhaustible amount of Daphnia because of the farming. 
and the, the, the spill off from the water. Of course, that's all been cleaned up because the environmentalists. The Passaic River was another river that was one of the dirtiest rivers in the United States, but you can get tons and tons of daphne out of that river because they were feeding on raw uh, uh, newspaper pulp that was being pumped into the river, and they were feeding on that. Yeah, that's and a weird. Course, I, that's a weird kind of yeah, irony so that, there with the with the runoff yeah. from farming and like a like wood pulp that you know not great for the water system itself, but the aquarists are actually benefiting because of the the abundance of daphnia and the other critters that feed off of that. That's that's interesting. Yeah, and it's, it's, in fact, if you remember one of the podcasts, I I remarked about the Delaware River. There was a guy down there used to you could you could buy. A quart of tube effects for two dollars, but what was happening was Campbell's soup was there, and they used to yeah 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 throw all their skins, and they used to pump all their uh, remains into the Delaware River, and the tube effects fed on a tomato product, and they that's what they fed on. So this guy there was carpets and carpets of tube effects in the bottom river, and he just put a rake, would rake it up, and then he'd bring them in, and he'd have water run on them to purge them. And I think I told you how they how to separate that from the mud. I won't get into that again. It's, it's, it's in one of the podcasts. But there is all kinds of food. So have, they have an inexhaustible supply of live food. We can't compete with them anymore. So it's annoying that they're sending a lot of these fish in, but they're not sending females. It's killing the joy of it. I mean, and some people are paying like 30 and $40 for a single fish. Not really fair to me. Yeah, we've got some to theories charge that kind of money, and then you don't have a chance to breed them at all. Yeah, I took home some. Uh, are they the Agazizii fire red epistogrammas? And um, in talking with Corey and Robert and even Dean, so some guys from you know kind of aquarium co-op, uh, we're, we're thinking that maybe that is one of the varieties that they actually don't send females. They always send males. And so what would you you think is a female and what never develops any sexual dimorphism is actually just sneaker males, right? So you always have like the one dominant male. You'll have kind of like the secondary, well, at least in my, my experience, you've got like that secondary one where you're like, yeah, that guy's probably another male too. You see a little bit. And then you've got a couple of the other ones much smaller. You think they're female, but, you know, you kind of do all the same things that you've done with other epistogrammas to breed them, and yet nothing, like, it just doesn't happen. And so uh, maybe that could actually be one of the cases of they purposely, like, they know which ones are the females, and they, they do their best to not let females actually come over uh, when those are purchased and, and exported. I think I heard, too, no, I don't know how true this is, but they may be pretty sharp, and they may have, they may have actually uh, people that are educated in the colleges to know what to do, but from what I heard, this is going back many years. They said they were able to uh, actually uh, feed them hormones or treat them with hormones, where you could uh, say you had a spawn of a hundred fish, you could take fifty of them and put them in a separate tank and feed them this, uh, get this hormone into them, and then you would produce all males, or you'd get all females, and that's how they prevented it from being. Uh, uh, bread if you sent them out of the country that protected them yeah. so i don't know how true that is well uh, i mean you've got i mean maybe. you see that you see that in nature where um let's see here off the coast of california there's the sheep's head 
the sheep's head fish, it's this, uh, like, the males are funky. They have, a, like, a giant nuchal hump. They've got these crazy canine... Like looking... sheep head minnow? Uh, sheep no, head minnow, is that you're talking about? It's a sheep's head fish. It's uh, Coral. No, it, it's a saltwater fish. Let me see here. Saltwater fish. Uh, oh, it's saltwater fish. It's in the kelp beds. It's in the kelp beds. I would catch them um, outside of uh, San Diego and La Jolla. The California, the California sheep's head, which hopefully that was legal to catch, which I'm pretty sure it was. Um, but that's one of the fish where when there's a dominant male, like you just have the male. When the male goes away, a female will actually go through the, the, the sexual reproduction change process and become a male. Right. So like we kind yeah. of know that fish and, and amphibians and these other creatures like animals are capable of doing that. So it's not a very far stretch to think that in a university somewhere they have figured out how to feed a hormone to a group of fish and rep- and suppress like, you know, reproductive development or whatever it is. Or maybe it's even something as simple as temperature. Right. Because there's certain fish where. I don't know how proven this is, but like, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So maybe, maybe it could even be that. Like they figured out that, okay, that one degree difference is going to give us all males. Right. And males in that species look better. Right. So if we're trying to sell a bunch of center fish, centerpiece fish to, to consumers, like, of course you're going to want the males. Right. So I could see the nefarious reasons, but then also just like the pure market driven reasons of, you know, uh, yeah, my friend, my friend, Steve Grubel, who, who used to own Cameo Pet Shop, which was, at the time it closed, it was the oldest pet shop in New York City, has, having been established in 1947. When I'd walk into his store and look at tanks, he'd sometimes come up to me and he'd say, see that tank, Joe? That's M.O. And M.O. meant males only. Because <laughs> hmm. he, had, he had learned over many years in the business, he, he would go to the wholesaler and pick out all the fish himself which was very labor-intensive, but that was the old-fashioned way he believed in picking out fish. But he would often just buy only the males because he knew that the average customer is not interested in breeding fish. They just want pretty fish. And as you just said, usually that means the males. Uh, (laughs) So he would have these tanks, and he would tell me, yeah, Joe, that's (laughs) M.O. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, the pistol grounders are easy to. Uh, if you if you raise the pistols in a lower temperature, you can get all males. That's happened with me. I have, like, I have to look for that picture. I have a picture. I must have about 150 pistogram. Uh, uh, what was it that I had in there? Cockatooides, I think. And they were all males. And be, and I found out later that if you raise them uh, and you spawn them, and then you raise them in water, that's about. 79 degrees, not 79, but about uh, um, 72 or 73, you'll get all males. And if you go around 79 or 80, then you'll get an even split. And I've done that, and that's true. Mm. And the reason for that is if you go to the Amazon, the Amazon is at the equator, and the average temperature is between 79 and 80, 82. So if you, if you just, like I always said, and then some of the other podcasts, Lay in bed at night and think of what happens in a while. And in a while, the Amazon is on the equator mostly, and the temperature is in that range bracket. And that's what you want to do because that's what will affect the sex. The sex ratio is determined by the temperature. Mm-hmm. And uh, it did work for me. I, when, I went, when I went to 80 degrees, I got an even, almost an even split on the pistols because I used to raise a lot of pistols at one time also. 
and I got a better better uh, uh, cross section of uh, both sexes that way. Yeah, and from from my own experience of just <laughs> being in the Amazon in the water, um, you know, you when you get towards like the center of a channel, whether it's a small stream or you know the, a larger part of body, like you'll get cooler water and you'll get various like the temperature grade. But typically, where you catch apistos, I mean, they're in you know very. They're, they're in the cover area, yeah, right? They're in more shallow areas, which yeah. are going to be warmer. Well, they're there for a reason, too. The, the predators oh, are yes. in a deeper channel. Yeah. So you know, most of the small fish will be along the bank. That's a, that's a strategy they use to prevent cannibalism where other fish from eating them. Because some of the big catfish are down in a... It's pretty deep in the Amazon. I forget oh, yeah. what it is. I don't know, 65 feet or something like that. Yeah, I guess the... So there's you a know, lot wet, of stuff down there still undescribed. Yeah, wet season versus dry season maybe because when we're... You know, I've only been down there in the... Not the driest part of the dry season, but definitely dry season. And you see the... God, what is... It? I mean, 20, 25 feet of water line. You know, like, we, yeah. you're like, oh, okay, here, here's where the Amazon currently is, and then here's actually where it could go. Like, you see that high-level waterline mark on the tree trunks, like, very high up on the tree trunks. So we're looking yeah, at Yeah, I have some pictures of that. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's crazy. It's crazy, like, just how much of a water swing you can get between the There's wet and the dry season. Water. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, definitely. So You can see the waterline. That shows you just how much water is. Is uh, is coming off the uh, Andes. I mean, that's where the snow melt starts. That's where the all that starts up in the Andes, and that's all snow melt coming down. Oh, it is. The headwaters. It, it's insane. The 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 height difference yeah. between low and wet season, and then the fact that it's spreading out over across the land is is just absolutely. It's not like it's within. Uh, a levee bank, right? Like, okay, here's here's a levee on both sides. I see a high water mark. I see a low water mark. Oh no, no, no! This water is just like spreading out everywhere. This is like it's not yeah. it's not really contained. It just gets that high and it just goes everywhere. It, it is. Uh, I I don't even know how they calculate the amount of water that you know can actually flow through there in a high season. Like it's just. I'm sure I could probably Google it and they would have an estimate. But like how they would even swag that seems insane to me. So, yeah. Rosario, uh, we are approaching the one-hour mark, and I am uh, thrilled that we got a chance to kind of unpack and understand the Black Phantom Tetra story. Um, super cool of, you know, how it all started with you going down there and, uh, you know, on, your, on this collecting journey, and then all of a sudden you see this fish um, in a Brazilian's tank, and, you know, that is the start of, you know, this thing, this, this beautiful fish that's a mainstay in the hobby coming back to us and your experiences breeding it. Uh, Joe, do you have any kind of recaps, anything you want to say in closing on this episode on our, our part three of the tropical fish history? <laughs> no, I just think it's great that we're doing this, and uh, 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 Rosario's got plenty more uh, <laughs> stories that... Uh, will tell people how things got started. So I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, maybe uh, maybe episode so podcast episodes for for the Aquarius podcast like 100 to 200, like 50% will just be Rosario recounting his stories. <laughs> and that's how that'll help me get to the 200 mark. <laughs> oh, no, you'll have good. no trouble. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so the teaser, so Rosario, uh, don't go into any details, but let's give the audience a teaser. What are we going to talk about next time? I think we'll talk about how the little Amandai Tetra, uh, that's kind of a, 
a story that's hidden somewhere in the cloud somewhere that nobody can see. So that's Hyphesum Bricon. That's another popular tetra. Yeah, Hyphesum Bricon Amande. The Amber Tetra. There's a story that was told about how that was named, which is really, really not true. Like I said, the story is up in the cloud, but guess what? Rosario was in the next cloud, and he saw what was going on <laughs> three years before it happened. So I, I saw the Amanda Tetra in 19... Oh, you're, you're teasing too much. You're already teasing too much, Rosario. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll, we'll, keep it, we'll keep it at that. And I'm going to tell you the real story on how the Amanda Tetra was named. And I had... I already had a deposit in the Smithsonian, but somebody in Europe. Knew the <laughs> right guy He's already going he too far. Don't get already Rosario. going too So I won't say any. I just leave it at that, and I'll, yeah. I'll leave. Awesome. I'll leave your tongues hanging, and I'll tell you the real story. International intrigue. That's hilarious. Yeah, and, leave, uh, leave it at that. And then, and then I'm sure and we'll. We're doing this, doing this oral history because, so I don't know how long I'm going to be around here. So. Let's keep doing it. I'm willing to do it. I can still talk and I can still remember. So uh, I'm looking forward to the November trip to the Clark Library. And this is going to be a very interesting program. I think it's unlike anything I ever gave. And I forget. Well, let me see. I started. Like, my first talk I ever gave was, I think, in 1953. 53 or 54, and I shook like a leaf in the wind when he asked me to do it. But that's another story, and uh, I wrote all about that in a in a book. But I'm going to be giving a talk in November, and I don't think I'll be giving any more talks. It's really hard for me to get around. All of a sudden, my left knee has really been giving me a lot of trouble, and I'm really hurting. I'm just sitting with my feet up on an ass. Like I'm very comfortable right now, not in pain. So Good. I'm kind of comfortable. And, you know, I'm talking about my favorite subject. So this is great. All right, folks. Uh, yeah, that's a, yeah I, I love that, Rosario. And I just want to, like, one more time, give people uh, a notice. So we're at September 16, 2021. Rosario is going to give a talk in November. Uh, when exactly in no, uh, November, Rosario? What's the date? Uh, oh, boy, let me see. I don't have a date yet. That's, uh, that's, uh, they have a website, the North Jersey Aquarium Society. Yeah, you probably I don't think there. Saturday. I was, they I meet go- on a Saturday afternoon. Okay. I Googled it. I don't think they have. Uh, I was on their website. They didn't have it up yet. They, they had a, a posting for their September, um, maybe their October, but they didn't have November up yet, so... Uh, no, well, it's not yet. Yeah, but, but it's always the same Saturday. Okay. It's always, you know, it's, oh. it's like the second Saturday, the third Saturday. All right, let's figure it's this out. The same. Yeah. Hold on, we can do this. And power, I'll tell you the nice the thing about the nice thing about the North Jersey Club. It's the only club that I ever saw that gives you a nice full hot meal. Can you imagine getting a hot meal too? Besides to see a program. Hey, I'm a I'm a sucker for food. I never heard so. of anything. All it's, right. It's unbelievable. So they have Saturday, October 19th. They're going to have Anton Lamboge uh, talk about West African cichlids. The 19th of October is the, let's see here, that would be the one, two, hold on. What's going on here? The 16th of October. Hold on, hold on. Is that 2020? Are they that far behind on updating this thing? 
Oh, come on, North Jersey Aquarium Society. Oh, man. Yeah, their stuff is like back in 2019. Uh-oh. So then I guess if I went back to 2019 and looked at that, or t- okay, all right. Well, hopefully between now and then, North Jersey updates uh, some of their stuff. If anybody that is a part of North Jersey Aquarium Society, we're doing our best to plug Rosario's talk in November. So help me help your club so we can figure out and promote it, and hopefully some people that uh, otherwise wouldn't come to a nor- North Jersey club might actually make a trip out to see Rosario speak one last time in, in, in public. I mean... Don't get me wrong, like, I'm already going to look, like, once I know the date, I might look at some flights and see maybe if I could swag a flight out to, uh, into Newark and pop in for a day and, and see you talk, Rosario. Uh, that, that, That'd be terrific. That might be a stretch for me, but I'm, I'm not going to lie. I'm going to look into this. Very good. It might be a good deal. Yeah, I think yeah, so. I've got, I've got some Alaska miles uh, still banked, so. Then I know Joe would come, then I know Joe would come out, right, Joe? <laughs> Yeah, you know, you know, you don't know where my wife is with this COVID thing. She's <laughs> oh, at Con One, okay. And if I want to, oh, we'll have to wrap, we'll uh, have to wrap you in cellophane. Yeah, uh, <laughs> she'll have to wrap yeah, wrap me in cellophane and uh, uh, aluminum uh, foil. Oh, yeah. nice. All right, gentlemen. Well, on that note, uh, we will talk. I'm sure that we will talk again between now and that November talk, Rosario. So we will be able to uh, update the folks on some more details on that one. But nonetheless, like if you're remotely interested, you've got at least a solid month and a half of planning to do to uh, try to make it out to the North Jersey November Club talk and uh, maybe pick up some goodies from an auction. But most importantly, watch Rosario talk and um, you know hear what he has to say one last time in public. All right, gentlemen. Well, thank you very, very much good. for your time. This has been thank an absolute you, blast. Hey, thank All you. All right. All right, Rosario, you have a Take good one. Take care, everybody out there in the uh, in, uh, internet land. <laughs> have fun. We'll see you next time. <laughs>